Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. In this episode, I speak with Paul Bloom, who is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University. He's the author of How Pleasure Works and Against Empathy. He has written for The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, and his TED Talks have over 3 million views. Paul and I talk about how while empathy has become a hot topic in the business world, it can also lead to bias. We also talk about the misperception that science equals certainty. We explore the ethics of persuasion. We talk about how altruism and competing motivations happen during a pandemic. And last but not least, we share how our good and bad habits have been created during the lockdown. Well, I'm thrilled to be here with the incredible Paul Bloom. It's always so wonderful to be able to talk to you in person, um, partly because of just the incredible relationship that you've had with Dr. David Pizarro, um, who is the Chief Science Officer of yes. Works, and he's talked on many occasions about the way you helped shape um, his <clears throat> fascinating mind. So um, I'll, I'll attribute some of the, the sharpest oh. thinking that he has to, to your shaping. <laughs> That's nice of you to say. I can't, take, I can't take responsibility for all of David, but I'll take responsibility for some of the good parts. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's uh, that's one work that that he's been doing on emotions and um, the the groundbreaking work that you've done over the years has been um, just so powerful for all of us and in particular the the you know foundational work that you did on on empathy is is you know such a such a way to to turn that emotion understand what's rational or what's irrational about empathy and, and to really transform and I think mature our relationship with such a such a fundamental concept of what it means to be human. So that, that work has been um, so groundbreaking. You were able to uh, reach into the mainstream with a book that um, millions of people have found accessible and changed and matured how they think about perspective making emotion. Um, and even, and even objectivity. Um, how does that work uh, help us understand the pandemic? And how should we be applying your insights uh, to our own understanding and interaction with, the, um, with each other, with, um, with social um, rules around um, social distancing, um, and you know, how our risk either fits in or doesn't fit in yeah. with with this pandemic. Wow, okay. Thanks for this very gracious introduction. Um, I think the short answer is that, that this work on empathy, as well as all of my other work, doesn't actually fit in 
well with helping us get through the pandemic. Um, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a public health expert. I have nothing to say about masks or social distancing or whether the university should open up in the fall. Um, we talk about this maybe, but, but I, I worry that a lot of my colleagues are also unprepared to, to give much of value in this situation and they just don't know it. So I think there's a lot of psychologists putting themselves up as experts on this when um, we're really not in that much of a position to give, to give firm advice on things. I think more generally though, what, what I do in my work and what I did in, in my empathy book is I try to argue that certain sorts of um, emotional reactions are corrosive to morality. They don't make us better people, they make us worse people. Now, it gets complicated. There's all sorts of ways you would want to feel empathy, all sorts of ways you would want to feel rage, you would want to feel shame or guilt or, or bias, some bias just fine. I, uh, I love my children a lot more than I love you, and I think that's okay. But but I think that there's all sorts of cases where, where our emotions lead us astray and empathy is a good example of one that does. So the, the, broad, the, the way I'd connect this to this crisis and any other is that we should be very wary of arguments or claims that make us zoom in on specific individuals and take their concerns. If I wanted to argue for a much longer lockdown I will tell you some horrible stories about people who um, who now frame because of the irresponsibility of governments and people up too early. If I want to persuade you we should open up right now, I will tell you moving stories of people who've lost their businesses or livelihood. Um, and the fact that this tool of empathy could be used to argue either side of the case just says how, how bad it is. Um, the psychologist Azim Sharif and I are have a paper, have a, an op-ed we're trying to get published where we argue that that under any sort of rational construal, the situation we're now in involves difficult choices. Um, what psychologists call tragic trade-offs, where we're pitting against um, different choices that will cause different amounts of human suffering, and there's no way to opt out. And it's fairly we could, if, if on one extreme, um, one would open up everything, give up social distancing, opening up all businesses, and that's insane. The risk to people would just be way too high. People would die. Another extreme, we stayed locked down until a virus, uh, sorry, a, a vaccine comes out and we, we cure it, COVID's all gone. That's insane too. Could be years. It's, no one would propose that. Businesses would collapse. There'd be people dying, uh, deaths of despair. So we're somewhere in between. And, you know, Toronto has one policy, uh, the United States, South Korea, Sweden, Denmark, people have different policies and they're all navigating the in-betweenness. And I think the way to do this is through intelligent cost-benefit analysis. And that sounds really cold and really boring, but it's actually the most moral and compassionate thing to do. So, so that's my shtick as to the extent there's any sort of connection. It's, it's helpful. First of all, I really appreciate your disclaimer at the beginning of this around um, kind of this staying in your lane about yeah. what your contribution is to COVID-19. And um, I think that the advice that you gave around, you know, some of our colleagues or the broader scientific community is probably very, it's, it's very well regarded. And 
you know, in many cases, it's probably well intended. People are trying yeah. to um, trying to offer whatever help or counsel or advice or point of view that they can um, in order to help. And sometimes it, it might be um, either intentionally or unintentionally um, more self-serving um, as a way to um, capture, um, you know, people's intellectual energy to maybe, you know, garner some kind of, uh, you know, additional, um, you know, compensation, be it recognition or financial, otherwise, um, as a potential expert in that space. And I, I hope that that's fewer and far between than, than people's desire to, to try and be helpful, um, or maybe just not recognizing kind of where the boundaries of, of their expertise, um, you know, are more, more firmly planted than, than in other cases. Yeah, you, 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 I think that's a generous attitude. I think it's right. I think, I think, I know tons of my friends and my colleagues who are rushing to publish COVID related things. And the cynical view says, wow, they're going to pump up your CV during this crisis. I don't think the cynical view is right. I think uh, these, these friends of mine, I know their work, I know what they're up to, and they, they believe honestly that they can help and they want to get their voices and they believe they have things of value to say and they are, they are sincere and they are not cynical. As to whether they really do have, have much to say, I don't know. There's a, a big article just got published in Nature Human Behavior. Um, I won't name, name the authors, they're very famous people. They're very famous psychologists. Hexton uh, seen as an author. Um, I'm sure people you work with are, are authors. Um, and this article makes recommendations, which in my mind are for the most part entirely true because they're incredibly banal. And they say that we are influenced by the reason and by the emotions psychologists find. We look towards others for guidance. When making a decision, we should bring in many perspectives. No, no harm done. But I don't really see this as, as I think to the extent that psychologists will say that will shock you, that will be genuine views, we should be very suspicious of them because they may not, they may not be right. They may not, you and I have talked before about the replication crisis and, um, and this uh, really rears its head in this case, where if we're going to tell, give people advice that will affect public health messaging, affect how people act in this incredibly critical, important time, we better be sure what we're saying. And for the most part, we're not that sure. Yeah, I think that the other challenge that we have is um, even when scientists don't know how to play in their own lane and you know respect the boundary of, of what they know and, and what they don't know, um, again, for various for various motivations. Um, the same goes on the layperson side. Um, it's it's an incredibly dangerous time for the the distribution and 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 firm conviction of information that that people don't have the ability to to process, nor should they be proselytizing it with the level of of vengeance. Yes. Um, and again, just using the kind of the tragic trade-off scenario that you used. Um, we have laypersons that are, are, you know, firmly finding their slots between, you know, position A and and position and position B, um, and that's just very countervailing to to what reason would dictate. So, I'd um, love to have your thoughts on on that. It's a good question. It's 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 an interesting issue. Lay people like me aren't to be blamed for being unsure and confused about a lot of this. Um, 
I'm old enough to remember because I, I'm more than three months old. And at the beginning of this, Vox had an explainer, which had explained things. That's what they do. They explain things and they had a Q and A said, is this a global pandemic? No, it is not. Do not fall for panic. Do not overreact. I'm old enough to remember when, when People were really excited about the idea of wearing masks. Then went on a period where in social media was giving studies which say masks actually make things worse. Now we're back to masks. Um, the world, according to experts, is either we are either just on our way out of this crisis, we'll be fine next few months, we'll just, just fade away, or it's going to hit us in the fall and kill us all. So it is reasonable, I think, under these circumstances for somebody like me to say, I don't know. But I think, I think to get to your point, though, what people often do is they, they take these views and they imbue them with certainty. You know, I've seen people say, you know, you think masks are good, you're crazy, you're crazy. I know masks are terrible. I've read this study. You know, you're a monster for suggesting masks. And often the same people three weeks later are saying, everybody should wear a mask. You don't wear a mask. What kind of heartless creep are you? And so, so I think a scientific attitude towards the world, one of the things it gives us is humility and uncertainty. What do I think about masks? Well, there seems to be consensus, growing consensus, masks are useful. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I think I'll wear them because I don't want people yelling at me, you know? And if, you know, so I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen. And that's, that's I think, when people talk about a scientific attitude, that's so much of it. Uh, not being certain when certainty isn't warranted. I think that this aspect of scientific thinking is one of the most profound and yet most difficult to understand and perhaps even to practice on an ongoing basis. And that's usually we're equating like, you know, oh, that's what science says with our expectation that that yeah. means it's certainty, it's objective truth, we're, we're, we're good to go. Um, and yet it's actually um, the opposite of that. And that's that it's that paradox that evidence and science seem to suggest um, full issue resolution and yet actually scientific thinking is about embracing this you know um, there's always some scenario where we where we could be wrong it's yes. very difficult and it's very difficult particularly in the case where the issue meshes with politics because politics is a game of certainty um, this person's terrible should be thrown out of office this person's great um, if, if, if I, you know, um, I am like to say every academic I know, extremely critical of Donald Trump. I hope he's no longer president everything like that. And it sets up a very adversarial attitude. He and his fans have your own adversary. And that's how, that's how cultural battles work. That's right. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that you talked about in terms of um, the role of, um, uh, individuals in terms of being able to uh, use that as a persuasion tool. Um, if, if you want to, you know, increase people's uh, commitment or compliance with lockdowns, then you show people of, you know, a range of, of age or other demographic characteristics to, to, to tweak their sensibility around yeah. that or the inverse, you need people to um, be, be ready, willing, and able to accept um, easing of those restrictions. Yes. And, we, and we've seen the, the impact of that in, in different domains. Um, 
I would be I would be interested in your point of view in terms of the ethics of persuasion and the intentional use of these fundamental insights about human belief and behavior. Well, that's that's really interesting. I I think in some sense the problem doesn't it you can imagine a problem coming up in a very serious way. If we psychologists were wizards at persuasion, we get people to do whatever we want. We know the secrets of the human mind. We know exactly the buttons to push. It's very far from the truth. Um, I think marketers and politicians are actually much better at knowing the tools of persuasions than university professional people and think tanks and so on. Um, what psychologists are often good at doing is testing different alternatives, thinking of different alternatives and testing them. Um, and, but some have some sorts of persuasion are better than others. Um, and it raises the moral question of what kind of persuasion is legitimate and what kind of persuasion is illegitimate. I think that the issue is incredibly complex given that um, as much as we want to always be able to appeal to reason, um, we know that people have bounded rationality yeah. driven by such, you know, not, not saying that people are incapable of reason, which is ridiculously insulting, but rather it just acknowledges that people are incredibly busy, um, have to make trade-offs in their time and how much energy they will invest in learning about, you know, the virology of aerosolization of... Yeah of COVID-19 particles and what level of dosage, you know, is actually infectious, you know, given yeah. of this velocity of, of ventilation in a room, you know, or, or, um, you know, can, can and should our, our uh, public health, um, you know, communicators um, leverage what we know uh, about helping people, nudging people to making a quicker decision if that um, imagery, you know, things like imagery of, of an individual maybe targeted population, if we know that that imagery potentially has a, has a um, ability yeah. to be persuasive and convincing um, for their safety and for the safety of others, um, it, it's a, uh, it's not circumventing um, the appeal to reason to get away with something, yeah. um, rather uh, just making, you know, very complex information that, um, you know, is very difficult to keep up with. It changes even. Um, even when we think we've learned something, the rules change yeah. again. And so um, why not use um, what psychologists such as yourself through decades now of research have have learned about what will quickly influence behavior. Well, so two things. One thing is certainly what you're describing is better than an alternative, which is simple coercion. I'd rather people persuade me to do something than stick on in my face or tell me if I don't do it, I'm gonna go to prison. You know, so 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 the state has various powers and and I think I have a libertarian streak and think that they should kind of, you know, that 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 these, the power of violence should be a last resort. I'd much, and what you said makes sense, but you, there's a premise in there, which, I, which, which is an important one, which is, and of course, they're thoughtful experts with my best interests in mind. I believe in public health policy. 
I believe in um, non-smoking signs and non-smoking signs and non-smoking vermin do not have to give a 10 part argument with citations as to why smoking is bad for you. It could be some picture saying, well, smoking's disgusting. No cool people smoke, whatever. It could, it could try to bypass there are a lot of cases where the state or corporations will try to persuade stuff us to do stuff, which isn't in our best interest because their interests differ from ours. So it's one thing if the state is trying to say, look, here's a way to be safe. It's another thing if the state is trying to say, um, here's why immigrants are terrible and why you should try to expel them from, from your nation. And then when we see when, when, when the motives are nefarious, then, then we see, oh, I wish they weren't trying to persuade me and my citizens and fellow citizens in this kind of clever way. So to some extent, my cynicism about these means of persuasion is grounded in somewhat of a lack of trust in the government for the most part. Um, I should disclose, I'm, I've, uh, I've never described mine as a libertarian streak. I am a, a libertarian, but I definitely find aspects of that um, political and economic orientation um, more challenged right now. Um, yeah. But at the same time, yeah. I see it more bolstered. Um, um, social action, philanthropy, generosity, um, people saying, I don't understand the science, but if wearing a mask will help others, then yeah. I'm going to wear a mask and I'm going to sew 25 more to donate. Green streak is actually totally compatible with, um, with a belief in the people's generosity and altruism. I've always believed that a lot of morality is, is kind of bred in the bone and and in fact, if, if you didn't have that streak, libertarianism from a practical point of view becomes a lot less tenable. If people are just absolutely terrible to each other, you might need more of a curtailment of individual freedoms. But, you know, I said I have a libertarian streak. I'm not a libertarian. I'm also sometimes a utilitarian, but not entirely. Sometimes I think that a really smart person trying to figure out what's really the best way to deal with this crisis in a way that all sorts of other values would end up with a few that could not be called libertarian or socialist or capitalist, but just blends them in interesting ways. I think that that is very interesting. Um, and it's interesting. Um, I kind of think that it's not that us scientists or psychologists have that much to offer in this time, but we have a hell of a lot to learn. I think this tells us a lot about a lot of different things about now a kind of optimal political system the best political system efficient and also moral is something which we could which we could learn a lot about it would surprise me if some of the ways we're doing things now will stick once this is over so what are some of those things that you're thinking about right now well we talked about some of them um a lot of regulations that that halfway thought were kind of stupid have been the government said okay don't follow them anymore we you know they're getting in the way um, and I think that they will stay. Um, I think maybe in some states you won't go to prison anymore if you cut hair without a license. Um, uh, I think uh, I think it might actually cause among some people who are sort of more hardcore capitalists a bit more of an understanding of how our fates are intertwined. And you know, public health is an example of even if you're the most selfish person in the world. You still don't want everybody around you to get sick because there's no way to protect yourself from getting sick. Things like that. Those are some things we can learn. Then there's a lot of things we just don't know about. Um, I know a couple of people who've been staying home a lot 
obviously. They sort of they sort of locked in, you, you know, and, and there's a bit of is this gonna cause an outbreak of agoraphobia? When this is over, will people who won't be able to leave their house? What will it do to people who were suffering from borderline hand washing obsessions and cleanliness obsessions? Will it just wrap it up? Will it increase anxiety disorder? Will it have paradoxical effects? I do know this guy, more than one person actually who said, always quietly, this is the best time in their lives. You know, it, it, it's, it's um, I know kids who feel that way. I know, you know, because maybe school is awful for terms of bullying and tormenting and they're free from that. Maybe people like to be alone. Maybe people like, um, I mean, it's sort of a privilege to be able to because, you know, most people have to work. Um, I know a guy who said that in his whole life he's been anxious and now he's not anxious anymore because the worst has happened. Anyway, we don't know. We don't know whether we're going to be happier when this comes out sadder. We, we just don't know. I'll give you a, just a concrete example, which is that um, a lot of people are saying that, um, that they're pointing to other, other disasters like Hurricane Katrina and 9-11 and earthquake. And see, this brings a community together. The London Blitz. This is the best time of my life. And they say, this is going to happen now. And maybe they're right, but this is unusual because we aren't together. We're sitting at home talking on Zoom. Will that substitute? We're not meeting on the streets and pulling people out of rubble. Rather, we're sitting in front of our computers and tipping the delivery guy a little bit extra. No, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, the psychology of, uh, of disasters is, uh, is, a, is a very interesting uh, subject and um, the long-term effects of, of um, potentially speak well to, to people. Yes, yes. Learning that, learning that uh, communities can be built um, mm -hmm. and relationships can be strengthened and that there's a lot of opportunity to see the best in individuals without relying on without relying on any you know official infrastructure or official bodies uh, to to come together to to help there's um, that that surge of the of individuals coming together to you know lift the rubbles off of uh, of off of victims you know and uh, and so so that's a very um, positive uh, potential outcome yes but how much rubble have you lifted? I haven't done it in home. Uh, so, yeah. So to draw to draw a parallel, I think it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that there are some some thought experiments in here. So, you know, first of all, do you see yourself as the kind of person who, um, you know, in in those kinds of physical, you know. Um, rubble type events, are you the kind of person who would lift the rubble off? And then what is the, the parallel here? So I think that there can be some parallels, like, um, did you start sewing? Um, did you uh, lean into the research to the best of your ability and try to, um, you know, dissuade people from misinformation? Did you yeah jump in to help people, um, you know, realize that, you know, Bill Gates has a very different history than, 
<laughs> and you know, evil entrepreneur who yeah. somehow, you know, did you did you try to lean in on on helping people understand where public health hasn't stepped in? Like, do, you know, are are those sort of equivalents to the while some, you know, creating the masks or doing the grocery shopping or these other these other kinds of things? I think it's um, that's a great list. I think some things uh, that people do are genuinely altruistic and connect them. Um, I'm in a, I'm in a, a, a apartment building on the corner of Queen and Portland, and somebody on Facebook recently said, "Look, if there's anybody who needs help picking up groceries, I'll do it. I'll just go get your groceries, bring them to your to your building." And and other people chimed in. I thought that's that's great. But then participating in the public discourse, uh, doing the best research you can, jumping in on social media, that's more complicated, right? Because is that purely altruistic or is that designed to get me more followers and more respect and, you know, and more admiration? And so it's not, and it might be that, that the stuff that, that feeds the soul, it's the stuff that you could tell yourself, this is nice, this is good, this is for somebody else. And if you're not sure yourself, maybe it doesn't have the benefits. I'm, I, you know, we talked before, neither one of us, we both have a, want to have a positive view about psychologists who are publishing articles in this time. And I think they have a, psycho, a positive view of themselves, but they must wonder. They must be sitting, you know, with their friend, or not sitting with their friends, but they must be turned to their spouse and saying, you know, it's what I'm doing kind of sleazy. Even if it isn't, they must wonder. Yeah, it's it is uh, it is interesting. I I definitely want to maintain um, an optimistic view that people are just looking for you know their their way to lift the rubble and, and yeah. maybe they'll do a meta study on all the COVID nineteen publications that came out in uh, psychology research in the future and you know were they trying to lift the rubble or was it just to pad the CV? You know? It's very hard to tell looking into articles. Most psychologists, like most people, I was going to say most, they aren't very good at their job, but people differ in how good they are at the job. The most best intentioned people might produce terrible articles and do terrible work, doesn't help anybody. Well, the most cynical, cruel, self-serving people might do actually kind of good work. The people who win the Nobel Prizes in, in the scientific fields are not necessarily the nicest ones. Yeah, so there's quality of contribution, and then there's this this issue of there's uh, motivation, yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and and I think that that's one of the things that we're we're sort of poking at is this issue of of intent. Yes. Um, but if we if we maintain our our and apply our our you know generally optimistic view about human nature, then um, we we might want to assume that most people are going into this with with degrees of, of altruism. And it's like, yeah. here's the thing I know something about, you know, I surely I should be looking at and studying natural experiments in, the, in yeah. you know, through this, or what else do I know about, let's say emotions and how that could help or hurt uh, things like uh, public health interventions. Yes, but I have to say, this goes back to what we were saying before. I think a lot of this work that's being done, the, the research work where people are trying to run experiments, is I wouldn't say of poor quality, but it, it 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 isn't of the sort that should be taken that seriously in public health. For instance, there's a lot of people uh, 
who are doing studies where say, they'll send you different messages. They'll send one third of the people a message saying, you should wear a mask to protect yourself. And another third will say, you should wear a mask to help your family. And another third, you should wear a mask to, to save the world. And then they find out which one's more effective. But because they can't judge actual effectiveness, we're all on lockdown. What they test is when people say, oh, I think that will, I would then wear a mask more, people's intention. Problem is we know from a zillion years of psychology that what people say they'll do isn't the same as what they'll do. And we also know that in situations like this, people like to look good. So I don't think there's anything wrong with these studies. They could provide suggestions, you could do it, but it really is, we got a result using these methods. Go ahead, public health officials, frame your message in that way. That's right. That's why uh, we spend so much time designing um, behavioroids and other forms of measurement of behavior that let us actually capture and understand um, what's real. Everything from, you know, you know, in this in this example might be, um, you know, uh, asking people to you know, send pictures of their masks and talk about yeah. how, they, you know, or ask them, you know, or you might load in other questions about what are some of the challenges of mask wearing, yeah. you know, um, and, and not to prime them, but to look at things like, you know, um, how long do you wear a mask before it hurts behind your ears? Um, you know, you load in those kinds of yes. questions. And what they do is they help serve as sometimes they're not perfect, but you're looking for proxies for that real behavior. And yes. that's, the, that's the most, I think one of the things that I have the most fun uh, working through is, is uh, how, how we can come up with those um, proxies for real behavior or actually designing experiments where we can, you know, watch people as they walk outside yes. or to the store. I, I agree. I, I, think, I think there's a lot of room for those sort of imaginative experiments that bring you a lot closer to what you're looking at. Uh, I, I have, I've heard of some really clever work where they use people's iPhones. So your iPhone monitors how much you walk. And, uh, and so you get access to the iPhone in some way, you ask people permission, and then you could see, well, is this message making somebody spend less time mixing with other people and so on? Yeah. And, and, and there's been some, some lovely big data studies. To, the, I, the studies of Scandinavian countries looking at, well, the finding I understand is that to a surprising degree, whether or not a place has specific lockdown rules or not has less of an effect than you might think. As a libertarian, you may enjoy this, um, which is that at a certain point, people stop going out. You see this in, in, in restaurant reservations, but also just in, in, in the, the iPhone data, people's, people stop going out, even if their society or country didn't have an absolute rule about communing with people. And that's really cool. It's very cool. And that's, and that's when um, techniques that help people to understand the underlying reasons for a public health uh, recommendation, helping them understand those underlying reasons can lead to that better behavior. Yeah, yeah. Though there's a question, is that the best way to persuade people? Now we've gotten back to that issue. Yes. But that's where we can layer our interventions. And so yes. uh, I love the work that the philosophers and ethicists have been developing around, you know, they, you know, there's, there's a total aversion to any form of nudging or persuasion or, mm -hmm. or other forms of choice architecture. And instead there's a, a, a 
an advocacy of, um, you know, this is another term, uh, which is, um, you know, we can appeal to reason um, by making it easy yeah. <laughs> to help people um, process the information correctly. You don't, you don't need to use the, yeah. the, gra the graphic, you know, image of, of a single victim. Instead, you can make the statistics nice, clear, and easy to uh, process. Um, is, that, is that a term you made up, boost? Is that uh, what they call it? No, it, the term is boost. I didn't. Uh, That's a I great term. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what's been interesting for 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 my work is looking at helping our 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 clients understand, um, depending on the nature of the decision, um, which type is more appropriate um, for the kind yeah. of behavior that you're trying to do, um, trying to to you know to influence and direct and and there's times when the risk to the individual are are higher and so in that case um, what are the mechanisms that we can use to facilitate um you know it's it's good teaching or good coaching or good decision aid design um and and that's what you need to do and you know they the outcome is stalled and until they've um, gone through that journey in order to, you know, uh, demonstrate that they understand the, the trade-offs enough to now engage. This would be, um, for instance, projects that we've done in healthcare, where individuals need to make um, commitments to um, uh, medical procedures or mm -hmm. other forms of medical interventions that are, are potentially life-changing, um, um, either, either in the case of death um, versus life. Um, or even in cases where it's, you know, you can take this path of med medical intervention and it's a path of no return, or you can take this path of medical intervention and it's a path of no return. Um, both will affect your health, but have different risks and pros and cons. That's an area where boost um, uh, can, can be very, very useful. Um, but then there's points when, um, and so, and so I call it, uh, this is this one would be my term, which is a cascade of interventions. So, so it's you know first you try the appeal to reason based approach and making that information uh, easier, cut through the sludge as uh, Baylor and Sunstein would like to say in order to facilitate that decision. But then, um, as the person feels again um, a lack of security and the ability to make that decision or other barriers such as procrastination, which we're thinking like, oh, I don't wanna make this decision, but it's like time is ticking and you must make a decision or you will die, for instance. Um, this is where you start to escalate um, the persuasion style um, yeah. dimensions. Yeah. You know, and another dimension of this, and this comes from a lot of philosophy of science, which is that deference to experts isn't necessarily irrational. That's right. I could, um, you know, it could be a perfectly reasonable thing for me to do when deciding what refrigerator to buy to go to Consumer Reports or Wirecutter yeah. and not do the research myself. Not because I don't care about the data, but because I'm willing to trust other people to crunch through the data. Now, this comes back to certain circumstances. It's not it isn't irrational for me to go to my, my, my local refrigerator store and say, what do you think the best refrigerator is? Because they'll sell me the one they want to sell me. Um, it's not the best thing to do to ask you know, a politician who you should vote for. But, 
But, and to the extent you think scientists are politically motivated, are motivated by self-serving biases, then they lose their status as experts. But if you can trust, if, you're, if, if, if it's rational to trust them, then that act of trusting could be as, as full of reason, in fact, more full of reason doing the work yourself. I, I think it's much smarter for me to take the advice of a doctor I could really trust and work things out by going on Google. I just don't have the expertise. Um, I think that that gets us back to some of the complexities that we have in COVID-19 and the challenge of scientific thinking, um, because it's not always easy to know who, who an, a valid expert is, yeah. even though experts themselves um, have this uh, challenge of staying in, staying in their lane and not realizing uh, the domain specificity that scientific knowledge um, is, uh, you know, unfortunately, but reasonably encumbered by. Yeah, and what people do in this case, because there's always a somewhat of a diversity of views, is they often shop around for the expert who says what they want to hear. You know, if, if, you, if you're the kind of person who likes hearing we're all going to die, I have some experts for you, a credential PhD experts. If you want to be reassured, I got experts for that too. I mean, my memory of this was actually the, the, the Clinton-Trump uh, election where the polling was heavily in favor of Clinton, but I knew people who really did not want Trump to win, and they were so happy to find somebody who said the odds of Trump winning are one in a million. They say, look, I got my expert. But of course, it's the wrong way to do things. Yeah, um, one of the yeah. things that I found so fascinating was research on, on climate change um, receptivity. And it, it, it certainly, um, you know, in some in some ways, like the issue is very, um, it's still very unresolved in my mind. It has to be. I, I don't understand climate science at all. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't understand the the data. I don't understand the statistics. I don't understand, um, you know, how it's gathered, let alone the quality of that information. But there are so many experts that are saying that yeah. this is a very material issue. And so, um, there's definitely a period where. Um, I would say, you know, I've had ebbs and flows in my degrees of confusion about it. But one of the things that was incredibly impactful was that talked about the relationship between um, ide ideological belief and our willingness to perceive a problem that there's really good evidence to substantiate if we disagree with the means to get there. And so, okay. and so for instance, if we believe that the required path to help solve that problem um, is something that is against our ideology, yes. like yes. heavy government intervention, and you've got someone with a libertarian streak, then you're less likely to actually accept yeah. the, the underlying issue. And I found that so powerful because um, where that I wish I knew the name of the researchers because it, it's, it was one of those articles that was was had a very profound impact on helping me, you know, at least a modicum of, of debiasing in my own thinking was, um, it's like, am I disagreeing with this issue and not seeing the issue because I don't have the path to solve? Yeah. But part two of their paper was um, on finding common ground, basically, which is um, we, we can collaborate on, let's take your means and mechanisms to solving it, our means and mechanisms to solving it, and, and now let's see if we can actually reconcile a more objective um, interpretation yes. or assessment of the issue in the first place. Again, which I'm gonna mangle, but it's something to the extent of, 
never expect a man to believe something if his job requires that he does not believe it. Yeah. Um, nobody goes and if the doctor says, you're fine, you don't need an operation, nobody gets a second opinion. You get a second opinion when the doctor says something you don't like. And if these recommendations are grounded in a scientifically made uh, assumption of the way the world is, you're not going to want to, you're going to be prone to reject that way the world is. And if there's enough experts to shop around, you'll find somebody who says the opposite. You know, when my, when my kids were young, my, my wife and I had a bunch of uh, child raising books. And if we didn't like what one of them said, we'd look for, we look for the opposite advice in another. And, you know, and because old advice is kind of good, it doesn't matter. But for climate change, it does, it does matter. And I'm exactly the same as you. I, I believe climate change is a serious problem. I mean, perhaps the most serious problem our society has to face. And you asked me, so tell me about it. How's it all work? I, said, I don't know. But I believe the people, I, I think there, there's good reason to believe the experts who tell me to worry. And that's, that's, that's weird. It's a weird cognitive state to be in. And in fact, that's, that's the cognitive state of COVID, where, where months ago, I'm fine, everybody knows it's fine. And, it's, and people say, you know, hide in your room. And they say, what do you mean? And it does say something interesting that people did it, that people locked down, even though there were no immediate signs of danger to themselves. Yes, and it's funny, we now see the post hoc rationalization around people looking at, for instance, the hospitals in California didn't uh, have the uh, over uh, overuse yeah. and crowding um, issues. And it's like, well, it's because they were the earliest yes. on the social distancing guidelines, earliest on implementing um, yes. the, the, <laughs> the quarantining, but people don't you, recognize that causal relationship. You do see this bizarre, um, this bizarre reasoning fallacy, which is we engage in lockdown to avoid terrible things that happen. Happening, then people say, "Well, nothing bad happened. Lockdown was stupid." You know, it's it's you know I don't know. It's like somebody who has a fire alarm and alarm goes off and they stop the fire and later look back and say, "I didn't need that stupid alarm. No fires." It's it's such a it's such a great analogy. Yes, and 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 you see this. You see an actual case study. I it's I think is it is it Sweden that had not much official lockdown policy, and I know some of you were very eager either for all the Swedes to die, which would, which would justify all the shit we're going through, or for them to be fine, which would suggest that, that the lockdown was unnecessary. And, and your, 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 your priors shape how you want it to turn out. And of course, the data is messy enough that, that there was enough for a while for people to, to, um, to, to read into whatever they wanted to. There will be a million dissertations written on, on you know, on what we're talking about here. Yes, there will be. <laughs> and I think one of the, as we, as we think about behavior, um, what have been some of the habits that you've developed um, over the last um, number of, of weeks, the good ones and the bad ones? And what do you hope uh, stays with you um, once um, we're able to, to kind of return to normal? Um, and which ones do you hope uh, don't stick with you uh, I have my bad ones are overwhelming um, I, uh, I uh, my, my my fiance would tell you that when we go outside I just I'm bumping into people and 
putting my hand in my face and everything, I've seemed to be found it very difficult to turn what I know to be safe behavior into instinct. Um, my routines are messy. I don't, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't, um, my, my sleep patterns have turned to, it's, it's, it's awful. And, and I have no excuse. I mean, we're here, we have a nice apartment. My kids are all grown up and in different places, you know? So somebody who has, you know, four kids and, and a job requiring 10 hours a day work, I understand that they'd be freaking out, but I should be doing better. However, I will tell you one habit which has maintained, which is we're cooking. I, we're not going to, I'm not going to restaurants every third night. We, we buy food, we, we cook it we have uh, real meals and I'd like that to stay. I'd like that to stay. Uh, better routines for cleaning, stuff like that. More, um, yeah. I think a lot of, I, I'm curious how, how you're gonna answer the question too, but I think a lot of cosmopolitans just spend all their time going to restaurants and, and, and don't stay much in the house. And I've moved to a sort of an older style of life where the houses are the center for food and for, for work and so on. What about you? Um, I think that uh, my my bad habits probably outweigh my my good habits. <laughs> okay, I feel I disclosed too much about what a, what a terrible habits are. So you, so so go on. What what kind of bad habits? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. It's got so complicated as well. So first of all, there's you know there's the challenge of of anxiety. So anxiety about um, my company, anxiety about the individuals on my team um, consumes just this tremendous amount of emotional energy that leaves me feeling as if I'd run a marathon um, yeah. when it's only been a very short period of time, um, you know, a half a day of maybe dealing with some issues and having to make some decisions about, uh, you know, about policies for my company and I'm just, I'm just wiped out. And yeah. I think that the good thing about that is um, I'm probably far more attuned to my um, emotional capacity than I've ever, than I've ever been. I've always been, you know, I'm a, I'm a workhorse, you know, just, just go drive, 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 decision, action, move on, you know, and, and grind out, you know, very long days and very little sleep. Um, and I've been doing that for decades. Yeah. And now I feel like everything has just been put into this intense, thick, you know, um, uh, you know, molasses almost, all, all of it. And, and so it's, it's incredibly draining um, and, and in many ways in, insurmountable. And so I feel that um, that sensitivity to those emotions and being respectful of, of their requirements has been good. So I, I sleep now. Um, I, I was the kind of person who, you know, three, four, five hours a night and I would wake up, you know, ready to run, charge through the day, um, have a social night and, you know, power down for a few hours and then, and then reboot. Um, I don't have, you know, the full level of optimism and great news and, you know, everything's amazing uh, to, to give me that nuclear yeah. power. And so I'm experiencing life in a, in a very different way. And I hope that I'm able to, um, to carry that sensitivity on um, and help me to potentially understand, um, you know, some of my favorite things have been, um, you know, for the people that are, you know, 
uh, writing books, learning five languages, um, you know, exercising, you know, doing yoga, meditation, um, you know, more power to you. But for others of you who, you know, are excited because you managed to get out of bed, you know, rock on, you know, rock on with your productivity as well. Like let's, let's all ease up on, on holding each other accountable for these like ridiculous levels of, of productivity. Um, I think that my, my sensitivity and respect for the fact that, you know, we're all in a different place um, is, um, has, been, has been significantly altered and heightened for good. And so I want to take that uh, negativity and, and uh, you know, bring it forward as something positive. I won't take it personally if you tell me it's expanded your empathy in different <laughs> situations. Well, I prefer the term perspective taking. Uh, so, so do I. So do I. But, but that's nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel the same. I've gone through periods where I've actually been quite productive in this. You know, working on a new book, doing a lot of writing, a lot of working, doing yoga in the morning, and all that stuff, going for runs. But I've also gone through periods in the last couple of months where I, 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 I said I can't do anything today. I um I did something which I have never done before in my adult life, which is I bought myself um, an Oculus Quest, which is a, a 3D a video thing. I do this and I and I shoot I shoot aliens for oh, hours at a time. There's so much there's so much fun. There's so, so much, much fun. fun. Yeah. So um so this thing about um, about habits, and in particular, you said cooking um, and and cleaning. So there's so many interesting things there in terms of natural experiments. Um, so how much will cooking um, at home last? Yeah. And another question I have is related to a project that we're working on, which is uh, food waste. How oh, good interesting. Are you guys doing in terms of like what does you know what what does the the rubbish bin uh, look like for you guys? Um, is that a consideration for you? Um, first of all, this is hmm, constantly overflowing, and it hasn't been a consideration. I just noticed since you ask, um, maybe one too many Amazon packages too, which is, uh, uh, but. Uh, I think in general, in part because there's also just two of us here, we're a bit more mindful about cooking a meal and making leftovers and so on, more efficient. I see this as what somebody is like if they live in a prairie or something, or like they're a character in a 1930s movie. But, um, but you know, just, just uh, less, um, less schmutz, less, less, less chaos, more, more control over things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the title of my next book, the New York Times bestseller. Let's let's what's more life. Um, so. It's the follow-up to Marie Kondo's book, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. What did what did she, what did she what's her book called? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, something 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 like that. Yeah, I just say we just throw out the schmutz, not, nothing else. Uh, so. So, but, but I don't know. I, I gotta say, I, I miss restaurants. What do you, what do you miss the most? Uh, I miss uh, being with my uh, social group, which is yeah. 
burners, so people who go to Burning Man. Um, oh, you go and, to Burning Man. Yes. Oh, and, I have friends who go. I never, I've never been. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I talked Bob Cialdini into going because um, I said it oh, was yeah? the yeah, world's largest experiment. So I'm hoping that uh, between books and projects, he has a, he has a chance to come because he's not even that far um, from, from where the festival takes place or the event takes place. And uh, there's the thing about Burning Man is in some ways it's as much a lifestyle as it is just a, you know, a, a event in the desert once a year. So there's a very active community of, you know, burners that uh, have um, events all the time. And it's actually been how I've maintained some uh, social connection uh, through the pandemic really? is this group has virtual dance parties and they're a blast. And oh, that sounds great. It's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, the DJs still play and we're still able to support the DJs. Uh, the artists and the performers each take their turn and um, we still get to dance and, you know, wear costumes and, and Oh, have a that, lot sounds, of that sounds wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And, that and, sounds wonderful. Yeah, and I wonder if something like that, and I'm happy to invite you. Um, if oh, I, I'd love it. I'd love it. I'm, so I'm, a, I'm a terrible dancer, but I think what's one advantage of Zoom, which is yeah. I can just like go like this and, and you'll think I'm dancing. <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing about this community is it's it's uh, radically accepting. Um, and I hope. Very so no one will notice if you're a good or bad dancer because that's a, a valence that's just not a part of the community. So. so so one thing that comes to mind when I think of a Burning Man, but maybe you don't want to discuss this in, in, a, in a, a Zoom video to be broadly available, is use of hallucinogens and other drugs. Yeah. What, what would you like to talk about? <laughs> is, 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 that, is that part of the lifestyle that you continue when outside Burning Man? Yeah, lots of people do. I, I personally am a, a borderline straight edge. I drink wine, so my daughter says I'm, I'm not fully straight edge, but um, it's... Uh, you know, it's kind of funny that I'm, I am as square <laughs> as, as I am, but I certainly know um, it's, it's definitely a part of the community. I know um, many scientists that do research on psychedelics um, and creativity um, and psychedelics meditation and creativity. There's, um, the thing about Burning Man is there are many, many scientists and academics who participate in the event and do things like give lectures and share their research at Burning Man. Um, but there's also people who, you know, um, uh, use um, recreational drugs to enhance or, or play some other role in their experience of, of Burning Man. And so if that's something that you're interested in, that's definitely there. There's a group um, that is dedicated to maintaining a census of the Burning Man community that looks at um, socioeconomic factors mm -hmm. of the participants. But it, um, the census, the long form version, also looks at things like people's um, experiences with, um, with drugs, um, but also sexuality and lots of other really interesting questions get explored at Burning Man. Um, so the Burning Man census shares that there's around, I believe the number is somewhere around 15 to 20% of the population that um, engages in the use of uh, recreational drugs as a way to enhance or augment yeah. their experience. Huh. 
And then there's lots of people like me that are super curious to learn about what that means um, and how that changes and impacts people's experience and contributes to an area of research that I did on transformation at Burning Man. I ran a field experiment there and um, Behavioral Scientist Journal uh, published the, the research that I did there and I was very interested in studying the role that this event plays in transforming people's lives and understanding in which way it did. And in That's particular, so interesting. Yeah, I had fun. I, I, it was a very simple study and I was just interested in, uh, did, did, uh, does the event um, uh, play a role in shaping people's receptivity to accepting uh, selfish offers? Do you, know, do you know my friend Molly Crockett? Oh, yeah, yeah, Molly and I go way back. <laughs> okay, okay, so she does, does that work. And, and I have another friend who I'm teaching a course with next in the, fall, in the spring, uh, Lori Paul, who wrote a book called Transformative Experience. Oh, cool. I she don't is, know is, Lori. She, Lori is one of the most interesting people. Uh, you, you, you guys would, would, would get along very well. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to meet her, and I'd love to to check out her work. Yeah, I did um, this Burning Man uh, project maybe seven or eight years ago, and uh, finally had a chance to write it up. Um, this like just just a few months ago. I think it was in the fall that it got published. Really? Tell me the journal again. It's Behavioral Scientist. Oh, great, great, great! I've I've seen that journal. That's great. That's great. So, question for you. Um, it's actually around scientific thinking. Um, I think I, I think I understand a little bit of the lineage of scientific thinking in our, in our mutual friend, uh, David Fazzaro, in that his mother did early research with Jean Piaget on childhood development. Oh, you told me that once, yes. Yeah, it's so fascinating because even um, and so the question that, you know, amongst the many things that he was researching, it was looking at um, understanding how children understand the world and even some elements of, you know, what are the scientific um, thinking principles that the children already already have. And I understand from a book that I'm reading um, right now, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll grab it. I'm not probably supposed to do this kind of thing, but um, I'm reading this wonderful book called uh, Pseudoscience right now. Oh. And uh, there's a reference in here to Jean Piaget um, learning about, um, you know, kind of the process of scientific thinking or the elements of it from Einstein. Yeah. So, huh. so from a conversation with Einstein in 1928 to Jean Piaget to David Pizarro's mom to David Pizarro led to this uh, degrees of separation on, a, on kind of this journey of like, what actually is this philosophy of science? What actually is scientific thinking? Um, so I'm, I have the same question for you, which is, um, you know, what, what inspired, what inspired you, what inspired your research, what inspired you to be a scientific thinker? Well, that's interesting. Well, I was, I was through most of my life an indifferent student and I ended up in psychology as one does when the, doesn't know what they want to do at McGill as an undergraduate. And uh, my brother is severely autistic and I, I ended up uh, working in a series of camps and daycares with autistic kids and mentally disabled kids and so on. And I figured I'd become some sort of clinician as part of the honors program at McGill. And 
I was supposed to find an advisor to work with and I went to all the clinical psychologists, but because I just left it way too late, they had no slots left for me and I, I needed to find an advisor. And I stumbled into the office of this guy, John McNamara, who um, I never heard of before. And I just was randomly going through all the professors. And it was one of these chance things which just transformed my life. So very much not a scientific view, which is he was a philosopher, true and true, caught up in the philosophical views. He was fascinated with Piaget. And in fact, he had me as an undergraduate work on a project exploring Piagetian ideas of categories and how categories were formed in the child. That a rose is a type of flower, a dog is a kind of animal, and getting kids getting sorted on that. And it was, uh, it was transformative. So I, I, um, I could have flipped the coin as to whether to go to philosophy or psychology, but I ended up uh, going to cognitive science at MIT. And, um, and there, uh, my advisor was Susan Carey, who was tremendously a brilliant uh, cognitive developmentalist. And I, but I also met with, with uh, Steve Pinker and wrote papers with him. And, uh, and Steve uh, was a really big influence on my life. Steve was a uh, in some way, he's, he's, he's a wonderful scientist, but also a wonderful public intellectual. So, you know, I don't say this about many people, but to a large extent, I self-consciously model a lot of my work and my, my career after his. Also at MIT was Noam Chomsky, and I took classes with Noam and, uh, and saw that perspective. So despite being at MIT, my background was never sort of purely scientific. It often veers into the humanistic. I'm not frightened in the idea of, of doing work, writing a book, writing a paper for something that doesn't sort of follow a linear scientific line. But um, there's parts of the spirit of science which are, are central to me. I like, um, I, I hate, I hate bullshit. I hate, I hate, um, <laughs> I hate obscurity for the sense of obscurity. Um, if I read something and I feel the author is just not making any effort and just purposely trying to impress me, I'll throw it down. I like clarity of thought and, you know, a lot of people were talking about, well, certainly Steve Pinker is a very clear writer and a deep thinker, but, um, but I think part of the scientific spirit is fundamentally democratic where, where, you know, I will have my hypotheses, here's my idea, here's my theory, and it's not a mysterious cult. There's no, uh, there's no rules to get in. If it, 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 it should be made accessible and any intelligent person can pick it up and run with it and criticize it and explore it. And that, that distinguishes science from religion, that distinguishes science from a lot of the humanities I'm less fond of. Um, and it's not just science. There, there's all sorts of humanistic endeavors that are marked by clarity and intelligence and a spirit of open inquiry. But science is at its pinnacle. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Well, I think that probably makes a um, you know, as good as any, a place to close off. Um, thank you for uh, your time. This was tons of fun. Yeah, thank you so much.